All right. Well, uh, first of all, just want to thank, man, the team for hosting us, Caleb, Brad, the whole team here at this church. This has been amazing, like just the hospitality that we've experienced. Thank you so much. We're from Kansas City. I've been told that this is paradise, and we're from a place called not paradise. So we're glad to see what it's really like in the natural We get to taste the spiritual paradise. We're here with a bunch of our students, our ministry school students, just ministry school students, wave your hand. Let's just give them a warm welcome. Uh, For those of you not familiar with the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, we're really famous for prayer and being international. That's about it. And uh, 23 years ago, we began a prayer meeting with live worship, singers and musicians, that has not stopped for the last 23 years. Every day, all day, through the night, 6 a.m. in the morning, people are there. Christmas morning, people are there. Thanksgiving morning, people are there worshiping the Lord. The prayer room's always open for people to come in and enjoy the presence of the Lord. But more than that, We're there to adore Jesus because he's worthy of being adored all day, every day, right? We just sang a minute ago, on earth as it is in heaven. And if we were to go to the realm of heaven right now, what would we find? We would find the perpetual, unceasing adoration of God. Day and night, night and day, it never stops. It's because he's worthy of it. And we're believing more and more that in this generation that the Lord is going to establish places just like this that see and value Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We come, we worship him, whether we feel like it or not, whether we've had a good week or not, whether finances are good or not, or the kids are doing well or not. It doesn't matter. All of those things are secondary to the primary issue that Christ is worthy of our lives and of our adoration. And that's what we get to do in Kansas City. And again, it's just such a joy to be here with you. So thank you, thank you for hosting us so well. It is a spiritual paradise, not a natural one, but we are delighted to be here. Let's go to Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. You can follow along, just beginning in verse 1. Jesus spoke to them a parable, and he said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out slaves or messengers to call those that had been invited to the wedding feast, but they were unwilling to come. He sent more of them, saying, Tell those that have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted livestock. They're all butchered. Come to the wedding. Verse 5, they paid no attention. They went their own way. One went to his farm. Another went to his business. The rest of them, in verse 6, they seized the messengers, the servants of the master, and they mistreated them. They even killed some of them. The king was enraged. He sent his armies. He destroyed those murderers. He set their city on fire. Then he said to the slaves, the wedding is ready, 
But those who were invited, they were not worthy. So go into the highways, find as many there as you can, invite them to the wedding feast. So they went to the streets. They found everybody that was evil and good. Or as Jesus in Matthew 13 said, when you go fishing, you catch a lot of good fish and a lot of bad fish. They all come in. The wedding hall is filled. Then verse 11, the king came in and he found a man who was not ready for the wedding. He wasn't dressed in his wedding garments. And he said, how did you get in here without your wedding clothes? The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Pray with me just for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of God that is your son. We thank you that the hour of history in which we're living, that there is an urgent call that is going out to this generation to respond to the purposes of God, to say yes at the deepest level, to not ignore the call that history will culminate at a wedding feast, but to respond to it appropriately, commensurately at the deepest level. We love you. We worship your precious son in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 22 is a parable that tells us how human history is going to culminate, how natural history will culminate. Now, this is important because there's a lot of theories about how natural history will culminate. And now more than ever, people are tuning in, they're listening, they're watching the news, they're watching what's happening in culture, in society, across the nations of the earth, and they're beginning to wonder, could it be us that sees the consummation of natural history? Some believe that it's going to end in a world war and nuclear holocaust. Others believe it could end because of a pandemic. Others, still others believe that it's going to end in strife or that things will suddenly turn around and will go into this blissful future of humanity. But the Bible teaches us that this time of history culminates in a wedding, not just in the battle of Armageddon at the return of our Messiah, our King, Jesus, but it culminates in a wedding. That means that your life and my life is on a trajectory into a wedding feast, a great celebration called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, where we will rejoice in our bridegroom king, Jesus Christ, and he will rejoice in us. And there's going to be a feast like you've never experienced a feast before. We've been hosted so well down here in the south, y'all know how to eat. We're from Kansas City, we do barbecue, we know how to eat. But beloved, there is a day coming where we're going to feast. And guess what? All those calories aren't going to affect our resurrected bodies anymore. This parable also displays that Jesus, the Lord, is revealing himself in three distinct ways. They all work in unison together, but it's Christ as the bridegroom, Christ as the king, and Christ as the judge of the whole earth. And I believe that this is an important message for us as Christians to begin to understand and begin to search out his heart concerning the manifold revelation of Jesus as the bridegroom, the king, and the judge. In chapter, or excuse me, in verse 2, we see that the Lord is the king. He's hosting a wedding feast. There's the bridegroom. And then over... 
in verse 7, we see the Lord arise as a judge to deal with his enemies that have betrayed his servants, have murdered them, and have rejected their message. So we see Christ revealed as the bridegroom, the king, and the judge. Most believers are very in touch with Christ as the king. As the king, Jesus relates to humanity in the way that he delivers them from their captivity. He delivers them from their spiritual captivity, the power of sin and shame and the bondage of darkness, the bondage of addiction. Christ as the king has the power to release human people out of the darkness and out of the chains that bind them. And that is the predominant way in which the majority of the body of Christ relates to Christ is as the king, the king of power. We're very familiar with him as the king. But Christ is not only a king. He is also a bridegroom that is in the process of wedding preparations for his bride who is his people, that is you and I. And as the bridegroom, we see that he's not just the God of power that releases us from captivity, but he's also a God of tender love and affection and delight in his people. Because the groom, the bridegroom, looks at his wife not just as a servant to go accomplish his works, not just as a foot soldier to send her into battle, but he relates to her with a heart of kindness and tenderness and affection and delight. Zephaniah 2, 3 says that the Lord sings songs over his people. Have you ever thought of your God singing songs of delight over your life? As a father, I love to sing over my family and over my children. I actually do it. I sing over my children when we do family devotions together. Whenever that happens, it's not as consistent as I'd like it to be. All right, moving on. I love to sing because my children, my wife, they need to hear my voice that I don't just endure them, but I enjoy them. And that's the same truth of God, the bridegroom over your own life. God doesn't just endure you and put up with you and look at you from heaven like, why don't you get your act together? Let's try a little harder this time. But he's a God of tender affection and delight over his people. He loves you. He enjoys you. And he enjoys you in spite of your weakness, in spite of your failure, because the cross of Christ has qualified you and brought you into his kingdom so that God can delight in you even though we're immature in our love. We're immature in our devotion. We see all the ways in which we come up short of the grace of God and of holiness and righteousness and purity, but God still delights in us even then. And then thirdly, and this is probably the one that the body of Christ is the most out of touch in, is that Christ is the judge of the whole earth. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. This parable shows us why he is the judge of the whole earth. He judges in our lives and in human history to remove the things that hinder people from loving him. That's why he judges. He judges evil to establish his goodness and his righteousness. He judges sickness to establish his healing power and the way that he has ordained the human body to function. He judges the nations in order for his justice to be established where there is injustice 
his judgment comes and removes injustice so that his people can flourish and delight and enjoy God and enjoy the way that they've been created to be in him. The bridegroom, the king, and the judge. I'm going to take a moment and talk about the ancient way in which Jewish weddings actually happened. Because we have to remember that our Messiah is Jewish. He's a Jewish man. And the Bible is a Jewish book. And it was written in a Jewish context. And so when Jesus in Matthew 22 says that the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding, we have to understand that he's not talking about an American wedding, a destination wedding. Come to Hilton Head to get married out on the beach. Don't mess up the sea turtles. We're all going to bring the family in for our destination wedding. Now, I don't know where you guys do destination weddings. I'm sure it's not in Grandview, Missouri, where I'm from. But in the Jewish tradition of the wedding, there were five stages. The first was the pledge or the betrothal. And the bridegroom would come and he would pledge himself to the bride. The second was the time of delay where the bridegroom would withdraw and he would begin his preparations to receive his bride. Often in that context, it meant that he would ensure that he had a job. Good thing to do. Young men looking for a lady, have a job. He would begin to prepare a place for them to live to ensure the security and the safety of his bride when he went and got her. So there was a period of delay. When that period was up, and sometimes that could be multiple years. Can you imagine ladies waiting years without seeing your beloved years before he would actually come? And that leads us to the third stage, which was the announcement. It was the announcement that would come that the bridegroom was on his way to the village. And if you were wealthy in that day, what would happen is they would send forth messengers ahead of the bridegroom to prepare the way for the bridegroom. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that John the Baptist was one of these very ones. He went ahead of the bridegroom to prepare the way of the Lord. And in the generation of the Lord's return, there are going to be those that the Lord raises up and anoints. Men and women, rich and poor, free and slave, all across the earth, just like John the Baptist, to begin to announce that the bridegroom is coming. He's coming. And there is a response. Hear me. There is a response that is necessary in that particular generation to be prepared for when the bridegroom actually arrives. So the third stage is that season of announcement. The fourth stage is the arrival. Following those messengers, those forerunners, is the king himself, the bridegroom, our beloved Jesus Christ. And he arrives in the context of this Jewish paradigm of a wedding. He arrives. And then the fifth stage is obviously the celebration. And the scripture calls that the wedding supper of the lamb. Let me tell you where we are right now. We are in the time of delay, the second stage. Christ has betrothed himself to his people. It happened in his first ministry. It happened during his time on the earth right here where he is saying, 
guys, Matthew 22, guys, all of history is going to culminate in a wedding feast, and you're to be prepared for my coming, for the arrival of me, the bridegroom. Now, he's not going to whisk us away to his abode like what would happen in the Jewish tradition of marriage. The bridegroom would come. Sometimes he would come at night just to extra surprise her. He would whisk her away, and they would go live on the hillsides of Samaria. I'm making that up. But on the hillsides of Samaria, very romantic. If you've seen the pictures, I'm just kidding. But he would come and whisk her away. However, in the biblical paradigm, that is not what is going to happen. The bridegroom is returning to the earth. We just sang it a minute ago. On earth as it is in heaven. And when we read the book of Revelation, when we read the prophets, we see that the whole trajectory of human history and the arrival of the bridegroom is heaven coming to earth. The new Jerusalem, his holy city coming to earth, the very city that Abraham waited for, mind you, is coming to earth. And that's the context in which the bridegroom returns And the wedding supper of the lamb is going to happen. It's coming to earth. It's a holy invasion. We're going to be invaded, all right. And it's by the king of kings, Jesus, who's riding on a white horse, who is filled with the fire and the power of his father. And he is going to deliver his people from sin, captivity, evil, darkness. And he's going to cleanse the earth. And we're going to reign with him. We're in the period of delay. We're also in the period of the announcement beginning to go out because more and more people, both Christians and non-Christians, are asking, are we in that generation where natural history is going to culminate just like we talked about before? But more and more people are actually leaning into that conversation and interested in a way that is unique in all of human history. And I want you to know that 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 is a unique sign that people are beginning to ask, what are these times in which we're living in? There have been surveys. You can find them online. CNN did them. Lots of, I figured you guys weren't maybe the CNN crew. I don't know. I don't know. Caleb, help me here. I don't know. But they begin to poll people even during 2020 in the pandemic, and they begin to ask them, do you think that you're going to see you know, in their own language, the consummation of of human history in your lifetime. And the vast majority of people were beginning to say yes, even unbelievers, especially unbelievers. So we're in the season of delay where the bridegroom is preparing an abode for his bride to live in. It's called the New Jerusalem. And we're also in that season of announcement where the call is going out because because it is very important that the bride be prepared in the way that the bridegroom intends and wants her to be prepared. Because there are lots of ways that we could prepare for the coming of Jesus. And we may not, if we're not careful, if we're not searching, we may not prepare in the way that the bridegroom wants us to prepare. What is the way that he wants us to prepare? Look down at verse 37 in Matthew 22, the same chapter. See, sometimes I hate these little chapter breaks where they write in, you know, this section is about the tribute to Caesar, and this section is about the answers to the Sadducees. But if you keep going, Jesus begins to tell us 
his people what it is that he, the bridegroom, king, and judge is after. And when we see this, we're going to have real insight into why he is the bridegroom, the king, and the judge. Look at verse 37. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Verse 38, this is the great and the foremost commandment. What Jesus is saying here is this is the chief thing that he, the bridegroom, king, and judge is after in the heart of his people. This is what he's after. When the servants go out to invite people to the wedding, this is what they're inviting them into in this time of preparation during the delay before the bridegroom comes. This is what God wants of your life. A lot of believers are confused about what God wants in their life. They're saying, I don't know what the will of God is for my life. So they come and they join a ministry where they have, you know, the spirit of prophecy and they're asking them, can you hear from the Lord for me to know what God wants me to do with my life? I don't know what to do. Let me tell you right now what God wants you to do with your life. He wants you to cultivate love for him on the inside that is more powerful than any of the other loves and the other affections that we have. He wants you to love him with all of your heart, all, I circled in my Bible, all. That's a very troubling word. All of your heart. That's the the place of your affections. That's the seat of, of what you want on the inside, what you daydream about, what you think about, what it is that you truly are after, what you're truly pursuing. He says, I want you to love me with all your soul. I want you to love me with all of your your mind, your will, your emotions. I want those to be consecrated to me. I want you to love me with all your strength. I want you to love me with all the resources that you have, the strength, the might of who you are as an individual. Some of the some of it is talents, some of it is skills, some of it is gifting, some of it is business and finance and education. The Lord has given all of us a measure of strength. He says, I want that strength to be used to love me and bring other people into love for me. And I want you to love me with all of your mind. I want your thoughts to belong to me. And we thought, Jesus, when I signed up to be a Christian, I thought it meant that I come on Sunday and I come on Wednesday and I do my thing and we got our ladies group going. And he says, my call to you is far more invasive and far deeper than you possibly imagined. But here's the thing. The bridegroom God has every right to make that request of his bride. Does he not? Can you imagine standing at the altar with your bride and you're there and you're, and you're confessing your love? And I, honey, I, I love you. I vow to give my life to you. I vow to love you with 98% of my heart. The crowd would gasp or laugh. Can you imagine what that spouse would feel? What they would hear? 98%. Yeah, the the other 2% of my soul. I've gotta, I've gotta free that up for boyfriends over on the side. Really? Yeah, just, but it's only 2%. 98% of my life, I'm gonna love you. That's a lot. You get 98% of my estate. You get 98% of my wealth. You get 98% of my affections. When, honey, when I'm with you, no, 98% of my attention's gonna be on you. That's a lot. 
That's maybe more than we get from our spouse. You know, don't look at the person next to you right now, okay? 98%, that's a lot. But Jesus, the bridegroom, the scripture tells us that our God is a jealous God. His name is jealous, it says in Exodus. His name is jealous. He goes, I am not going to settle for 98% of your heart, your life. He goes, I want all of it. I want everything that you are to be about loving me. Now, here's why. That's the call. Wholehearted love. The first commandment. And here's, here's, the, here's the thing. Jesus, as the bridegroom, the king, and the judge, it takes these three reflections of his heart, expressions of his heart, in order to establish his bride, his people, in first commandment love. It takes all of them, not just one. It takes the power of his kingship. It takes the affections of his heart as the bridegroom. And it takes his zeal as a judge to remove the things in our life that hinder us from loving him. We cannot, as a people, respond in wholehearted love to the first commandment in first place without Christ operating in our life as the bridegroom, the king, and the judge. Now, here's the thing. He's already operating in your life as the bridegroom, the king, and the judge, but often we just don't know it. We're misinterpreting the things that are happening in our lives because we don't understand, we don't grasp what this man is capable of. And the requirements, the demands that he's making on our life. Lord, I can't, you can't call me to love you with all that you are. I don't want an arranged marriage. He says, neither do I. So let's do this together in love. So that God operates as the king in your life. He'll come and set you free from the power of darkness. He'll deliver you from demons. He'll forgive you and wash you in the blood of Jesus Christ. Wash away your sins so that you're a new creation in him, Paul tells us. A new creation. According to your spirit, you've been given the righteousness of God. He comes also as the bridegroom. And he says, I want you to relate to me as the bridegroom God. I want there to be a tenderness in our relationship. I don't want you to just be deployed as a soldier and just march March forth into the kingdom, march forth into your job, march forth into your neighborhoods and just take ground for God. He goes, I appreciate that, but I also want there to be a tenderness in our relationship. I want you like John the beloved that would lean back and put his head on the chest of Jesus. There was a nearness. There was a closeness. There was, we've preached it for years. Christianity is about a relationship, not a religion. He says, I want you to touch the relational aspects of your heart because when you encounter me as the bridegroom God, it will settle issues in your heart that you didn't even know were there. You didn't even know that God liked you and enjoyed you. He says, but here I am as the bridegroom. You didn't even know that I'm walking with you in the seasons of your life, the ebbs and flows where you're coming up short in holiness. You're coming up short in your finances. You're coming up short in your marriage. He says, you think that I've just distanced myself from you like a drill sergeant and started shouting at you to do better. He says, no, I'm the bridegroom God. He goes, I, I really get it. I really get your struggles. I really get your propensity for weakness. I really get your wrestle with shame. I really get your wrestle with addiction. 
and I'm going to come next to you tenderly, humbly, and we're going to walk this thing out together as I'm telling you the way that I feel about you. It will radically transform your life. And then he says, I'm going to operate in your life as your judge. But you need a judge. Why? Because there's injustice that's being done to you. There's being there's injustice that is being uh, uh, just the onslaught of accusation and the onslaught of the enemy that's being wrought upon your life. And you're also, like me, incapable of removing things in our life that seem good, but that are stealing the best. So here's how, here's how that happens. One of the ways God comes, he brings correction in our life. We might lose a relationship. We, we may have liked that relationship. We might lose an opportunity, but we may have liked that opportunity. Jesus says in John 15, he says, I, I will prune my branches, my people, so that they become more fruitful in me. So I'm going to come and remove the things that are hindering you from loving me. But here's what happens. That, that happens. That occurs in our life. We misinterpret it as the work of the enemy. No, it's the devil that's stealing away this opportunity. It's the devil that's stealing away this business venture. It's the devil that's stealing away my boyfriend, my girlfriend, whatever it is. It's the devil that's doing it. And the Lord goes, actually, it's me. Because I am the bridegroom God. And because of that, I'm going to remove things in your life that are hindering you. I'm going to address areas in your heart where there is, where you've walled off to me. You need my judgments. You need my justice in your life. You do. So this is Christ as the bridegroom, the king, and the judge. Now look at verse 38, Matthew 22, verse 38. Jesus says this, this commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He says this is the great and the foremost or the first commandment. That means this. His call to his people to love him in this way during this season of delay, he says, this is the premier thing on my mind. Just pause for a minute. Consider what it is that God has on his mind for your life. Consider for a moment. What is it that God wants the most? We have our request to the Lord of what we want him to do. And what we want, we, we, we feel the pressing, pressing issues on our life. So we come in our times of prayer, during our times of intercession, during our devotional time. We're talking to the things that are on our heart. Jesus here, he goes, I want you to invite you into the things that are on my heart. This is a, a radically different paradigm to operate in. That the Lord is stirring up in believers. Love it. I figured out, like many of you probably have, you seasoned ones, you wise ones out there, I am not the center of the universe. My cares, my concerns, my pressures, my desires, what I need God to fix in my life is not the center thing that is driving the trajectory of history. Paul tells us that Christ will be preeminent in in Colossians 1. It means that he's going to be the chief. He's the Lord. He's not just our savior, 
to get us out of the prison of sin and shame and bless our life and make our families better and heal our bodies. He's the Lord. He's the absolute center of the universe. He goes, I'm, I'm doing something in Hilton Head and the low country. I'm doing something in your nation. I want you to come and talk to me about what I'm doing. I want you to get on my page and my tradition. He's not doing it with any, you know, spirit of criticism, like, come on, guys, you idiots. He's not saying anything like that. He's inviting us into it. He's saying, I'm the Lord. I'm the center of the universe, if you remember. He says, the first thing on my mind is this, my people loving me. If my people aren't loving me, it doesn't matter how big our churches are. It doesn't matter how effective our evangelism is. It doesn't matter what kind of kingdom marketplace things that we're beginning and we're getting prayer meetings together, you know, at the lunch hour together. If God's people don't love him, then who does? It's all for love. He's looking at the earth. He's going, I'm a bridegroom. I'm coming for love. I want a people that are that are loving me in a commensurate way, that love me as I love them. And yet many are trapped. They're trapped in a form of godliness, in a form of religion, but it's disconnected from love. And we imagine that if we check our boxes, if we go through the motions, if we lead the Bible study, and then we go do the outreach, and then we sit on Sunday morning, that we're somehow being lovers of Christ, I want to tell you that that is a sham. It's an absolute sham. What are the things that are in the way of wholehearted love? Go back to verse 5 in Matthew 22. As the call goes out to prepare for the wedding feast, to be in this trajectory of growing in love for Christ, wholehearted love, all the way love, all the way in, complete devotion. These, these are the things that are beginning to hinder love. Verse 5, some pay no attention to the call of the bridegroom. They pay no attention to it. They, they count it as an indifferent thing. It's not that important. It's not that urgent. That's for the other people. That's not for me. I'm good. I'm okay where I'm at with my relationship with God. I'm good. So they pay no attention to it. Others, it said, they went their own way. So they heard the message. They knew there was a bridegroom God, but they decided to go do their own thing. Jesus became an addition to their life, not the center of their life. Jesus was added on later. He was uh, something that we downloaded to our computer to help the computer function more properly. People search for God because they want their life to work out. What if God didn't want their life to work out and he just wanted them to find him? What if he were the end? What if their life was a complete misery? What if they were impoverished? They were enslaved. They were put in a prison somewhere and just left there. If they had Christ, would they have all that they need? What if God isn't just an addition to our homes? What if he is the home? What if we're the addition to his home? So there are those that they went their own way. They just chose, I don't really need to do what God has called me to do. I've got so much going on. 
I'm so busy in my life. I've got the kids. I've got my schedule. I don't have time to do what is necessary to cultivate this love and devotion, this first commandment in the first place in my life. I don't have time to do it. It seems like a big ask. And we we look at our pastor, you know, Pastor Caleb, and Pastor Caleb, I don't know if I can really go for God all the way in the way that you're talking about. I'd rather go my own way. That is a dangerous place to be, dear friends. One of them goes to his own farm and another to his own business. And it's the cares and the prosperity of life that is one of the chief thieves of our deep life in God. It's not that God has not desired us to prosper. It's not that you can't have influence or power or resources. That's not what happens. It's that those things take the place in our heart that is meant solely and only for the bridegroom. Because our attention and and our affection and everything becomes hooked into our pursuits and into going our own way. Our prosperity, our materialism, the things that we have, the the strength that we have, the intellect that we have, those things all seek to crowd out the place in our souls that is meant chiefly for the bridegroom. Their boyfriends, their girlfriends. And when you look at the history of Israel and the Jewish people, God always rose up and began to correct her when she had boyfriends of prosperity in the other nations. She was enticed by them. She wanted their riches, their wealth, their pleasure that they offered. And the bridegroom said, I'm a jealous God. You covenanted with me on Mount Sinai that you would be mine and I would be yours. He goes, I'm holding up my end of the bargain and I will do whatever is necessary to get you into wholehearted love for me. This is what the Lord is after. And this is what the Lord is after for us. He's challenging us. We're gonna bring this to a close now. Here's the invitation. You're in the trajectory right now of your life. You're headed for a wedding. And the Lord has called all of us, every one of us, to respond to put the first commandment in the first place of our lives. And the way that we do that is by beginning to grow in our understanding of Christ as the king, Christ as the bridegroom, and Christ as the judge to go on a journey to commit our lives and say, Lord, I'm going to go on a journey to search you out in this way because I want to fulfill the desire that's in the heart of the bridegroom. So when I stand before him, I do it without shame. I do it without any reproach. There's no spot or wrinkle in my life where there's been disagreement with what you've called me to do. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word in the name of Jesus. We ask you, Lord, that Everything that is of the spirit would take root. Everything that is of the flesh would be purged away and that you would call forth your people in this whole region, Lord, to respond to this call to set the first commandment in the first place as we aim towards the wedding day. You're coming, Lord. We love you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.